Sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Hey, I'm your old friend Nate Larkin. Uh, flying solo here in the control booth this morning. Uh, our mutual friend Aaron Porter is at this moment in his little Toyota, along with two kids and two dogs, cross-country on his way to California, where he plans to spend the next six weeks with family and friends. Say, if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you've probably noticed that quite often recently, the interview part of the show has been conducted by just one of us, either Aaron or me, rather than both of us. And that is simply because as life has picked up speed uh, and things have gotten more complicated, far more actually for Aaron than for me. He's had changes uh, at work uh, that required, uh, that brought about a kind of a loss of flexibility for him. Anyway, it's gotten tougher and tougher for he and I uh, to actually get together at the same time, uh, especially together in the same room uh, to record the show. Uh, I'm hopeful that that's going to be able to change on down the road. In the meantime, before he left, Aaron did record a couple of great interviews. We're going to play one of them today and another will come next week. Um, so what are we going to do for the balance of the show? I don't think that you just want to hear me. So my idea was to go back to something, a segment that we used to do quite regularly on this show in years past, the Samson mini-meeting. Uh, so here's what I did. I went on Slack yesterday and asked for three volunteers to, uh, to join us on the show, join me on the show for a mini-meeting. Within minutes, I had three volunteers. Uh, they are waiting in the wings. So uh, uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to have a Samson mini-meeting. We're going to have a mini-meeting. And I've got Justin and Christopher and John with me. Hey, guys. Hey, Nate. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, uh, welcome to this mini-meeting of the Samson Society. Uh, our topic today, I'm going to dispense with uh, the, the typical readings. Uh, our topic today is abandonment. Uh, but we're not confined to that subject. You may speak about any issue that's currently commanding your attention. Uh, and the floor is now open. Well, I'll jump in. I'm Nate. Hey, Nate. Um, you know, I was talking with a friend yesterday. We were talking about tribal loyalties, how, uh, you know, tribalism is a part of human experience. All of us are born into a tribe. Uh, and it's very uh, difficult, very challenging uh, to ever leave a tribe or to challenge the orthodoxy of a tribe. And uh, so my friend and I were kind of speculating about where that comes from and how it affects us today. 
I do know that, um, you know, we humans are born completely helpless. Uh, you know, as infants, if we do not uh, have the careful, you know, attentive, loving care of adults, somebody to feed us and change us and keep us warm and keep us out of the elements, we're going to die. We know it. And uh, so in order to survive, we need to stay in the good graces of those big people around us. And so we learn early on uh, to perform. We learn what to do and what not to do. Um, and, uh, the, you know, the, the better we perform, the more, uh, you know, positive reinforcement we get. I don't know about any of you guys, but I was a pretty damn good performer. Uh, you know, first, first kid, uh, parents that doted on me, you know, mother that adored me. I learned what she liked and I, I knew what she didn't like and I could make her happy. And, uh, and I carried that performing thing, you know, on into, you know, young adulthood and then into adulthood. Um, and what I did learn, and I think we all learn this in, in, you know, the tribe that we're in, we, we learned that there are certain things that are unacceptable. There are some things that can't be done, some things that can't be said, and even in most cases, some feelings that can't be felt. Um, and if we cross those lines, then, then we can be, we lose, if at least we're going to lose status in the tribe or, um, we run the risk of being kicked out of the tribe. And that's just terrifying. I think our deepest fear, my deepest fear, I think is my fear of abandonment. That's what's behind my performing. I perform to be accepted because the alternative is just too freaking terrifying. And I think that's what kept me for so many years from actually coming right out and telling somebody in my tribe how bad it had gotten, how far off the reservation I'd wandered, you know, what that, what I was into. Um, I sincerely believed rightly or wrongly that I would be shown the door. Um, I would certainly lose status. And that played to my pride as well. And that big part of my identity. Um, and I can't tell you what a huge relief it was to find a tribe in recovery where um, I didn't have to bring my false selves into the room. And I could say anything and people were going to move toward me and not away from me. And, and I'm glad that Samson, I do know on an intellectual level that Samson is that kind of tribe. I could say anything. Um, and nobody's going to kick me out. I know that intellectually, but I find myself in this spot, in uh, an emotional spot. And I think it's really, really old. I think it goes back to when I was just a kid. There is, I still have this urge to perform even in Samson. Uh, I have an urge when it comes to disclosure to pull my punches a little bit. Um, I don't think anybody in Samson needs me or wants me to be perfect uh, or to be a, you know, an ongoing success. Um, but I still find it challenging 
Uh, and it, the bigger the group I'm in, the bigger the challenge. <laughs> it's easy when I'm just talking to one guy, especially when my core guys, my core guys know everything. But um, I get into some larger groups and there's a part of me that says, you know, you better you better put some nice frosting on that, Nate. Um, uh, otherwise, uh, and it's that old fear of abandonment. It's so deep. Um, I'm glad that I've lost, I think I've lost my fear that God will abandon me. I think I understand the gospel and believe the gospel the way I didn't during my years of active addiction. Uh, but the fear that people might abandon me uh, has not completely dis uh, dissipated. Thanks, I'm Nate. Thanks, Nate. Thanks, Nate. Hey, I'm Justin. Hey, hey Justin. You know, uh, hey, Justin. I think of that word and that word reigned with me is why I never trusted anybody. Mm -hmm. um, why I lived a, a life of isolation for so long. Yeah. I, I, it goes all the way back to, you know, I've done a trauma egg and I've done all the things that have occurred dramatically in my life and, and understanding that <clears throat> the, there's some core elements, there's core stories. And one of them, was it, it no fault by my parents, but it just happened. They, they tried to be the best parents they could. But when I was two, they were visiting a friend's house and um, uh, it was actually their parents' house. And they had a de detached garage that turned into a room. And I went to sleep. They set me there in the room. I was two-ish. And they went off and dinner with friends and all the things. And I woke up. And there was nobody around. And I was too, so I couldn't open up a door yet. And because it was a detached garage, there was no way that anybody could hear me. So I tried to get it out, couldn't get out, banged on the door, all the things. I mean, for me, that, that seemed like an eternity. It could have been an hour, could have been two hours, um, but it could have been like an eternity. And, and I relate back to when I am alone, still to today. That that one episode, traumatic experience in my life, how it played to no one's going to be there for me. And I lived that out and I held on to that. And part of why I chose to act out, chose to cheat on my wife, chose to watch porn, chose to do all the things because I didn't have to trust anybody. I could still be alone and in my way be safe because I crawled under the bed that night and cried myself to sleep and I could still be that way without anybody having to know how scared, how hurt, how angry, all the emotions that, that brought despair within my life. I didn't have to show them because it was a big hole. But I can also say, thankfully, that I, since then, have, have, have done a lot of work and had the opportunity to work with a very, very, very talented CSAT and, and go through those other elements of my life, not just that one, but those other elements, understanding that doesn't have to define me. That, that being abandoned early on doesn't mean that I'm abandoned now. And just like you said, Nate, earlier, uh, it just doesn't mean that God is ever abandoned me because he had, hasn't but i sure as hell thought he did growing up i sure as hell thought he was the angry dad 
or the angry God. I sure as hell thought that he was the God that if I didn't do right, he would chunk the deuce to me until I repented, until I said, God, I'm sorry, until I got to the Bible and I read more. And I did things that would bring him back or I'd come back into his grace. And I, and I didn't understand that word, what it truly meant. I didn't understand really what the gospel truly meant because because of that. So ultimately, a big part of my journey, my path, has been related to that word. And really the falsehood and the farsi of it, of the lies that it, it continues to tell me. Hell, it still tells me today. I'm not going to lie to you and say I beat it and it's gone. No, it's there. It's standing there. That that monster is still knocking on the door. But I know this much. That even though it does knock on the door, I know I can come to this meeting. I know I can come to the community of Samson. I know I can now go to my wife and tell her and tell you guys how I'm feeling. What am I thinking? What am I doing? What am I thinking of doing? And in that process, I find connection, which is the opposite of abandonment. And I never thought I could. I never thought that that existed. I remember the first time I read your book, Nate, and I heard your stories and heard when you were talking about going to see an accountability, basically police in that process and guys saying, you did bad, you did bad, you did bad. And that's that was my experience growing up. So I never had true connection. It was, it was, I was still abandoned, even though I was trying to be real and be who I was. So I, I was scared, but to say, I can sit here with you guys and tell you that, tell you that, look, I'm a broken man. I'm a man that's flawed. I'm a man that's done a lot. And at the end of it, that's okay because God loves me and I'm safe here. And I'm thankful for that. Thanks to Justin. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Justin. Hey, I'm Chris. Hey, Chris. Hey, Chris. So, abandonment. Um, growing up, I've dealt with it a lot, actually. Um, so, um, my stepdad, um, I grew up without a father. never met uh, my dad. I didn't know him at all growing up. Uh, so, I had a stepdad, my uh, sister's father. Um, and Christmas Day, he ended up leaving us. He just ended up leaving us and taking off when um, later on my mom and him got a divorce. Um, it So I basically grown up without a father and one of those things is just kind of the acceptance and just feeling abandoned and I want to be accepted by everybody. And then you go into about 10 years ago, my mom passed away and she was my my go-to she was the person i go to my safety net my so my whole life has been about acceptance because i've been i'm afraid of being having people abandon me or fear of abandonment and being connected to people and i've always i've always strived for that because i've been scared that i just i'd be alone for the rest of my life and I don't didn't want to be in that situation ever because it scares me to death. Um, it, it literally scares me to death. Being alone is something that really scares me. Um, so just I've tried to strive to um, 
make people accept me, to feel accepted, to be a part of the group. I mean, even when groups come, when friends come and visit, I try to be part of that group and make myself look good. So I'm accepted in that group because I feel like I'm, I'll be pushed away and I'll be the person that, like in high, back in school, when you're, um, you're the last guy picked for um, uh, a sport. I've had that happen to me always when I was in high school. I mean, it was just like one of those things. So I have a severe fear of abandonment. I always have and been trying to work through it. And the, the thing is, is just when I found Samson Society, it was kind of interesting because I, I felt totally accepted. <clears throat> Nobody judged me. And that's the one thing that kind of I loved about it was that the, I could say anything I want and the guys wouldn't turn around and wouldn't judge me or wouldn't say anything that would, you know, make me, you know, feel unaccepted. It was, it was this group of camaraderie that I actually loved. And I never, it's, it's something that I, I love having. And it's important to me because of this fear of abandonment. It's something that I've tried not to be part of. And I didn't want to have abandonment happen. So, but Thanks, guys. I'm Chris. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Hey, guys. I'm John. Hey, John. Hey, John. Um, hey, John. Nate, I love the way you put it when you started talking about being in tribes. I mean, I go back to third or fourth grade when my problem started, when my addiction started. And looking back, I was almost always pretty much a loner because one of the reasons was I, I didn't want people to find out. And my parents didn't know what to do with me. And I guess that's why I like, um, I don't have a problem being by myself because uh, I got used to it early on. And the it's kind of a two-edged sword because when I'm by myself, you know, I don't have to worry about running into anybody or, or anything like that. And um, I go back to the story of my dad was an alcoholic and we were working together. And things were not going well with the business. And I mean, I idolized my father. Um, and I always wanted to hear that he was proud of me. And uh, even, you know, up until the time he died. But while we were working, I remember I had a friend of mine. I was talking to him about the problem, you know, the explosive explosions and stuff like that. And he said, you need to go to an ACOA meeting. And I said, okay. So I went, and that's the first time in a long time I felt like I could take a deep breath. And things rocked along, and I didn't go to a lot of them. But the first time I got on the newcomers meeting and I read Nate's book, it was almost like a, a craving I didn't really know about had been satisfied because – you know, it took a while to tell the entire story. Uh, Justin and I were at an intensive in Goodman, Mississippi. Uh, good luck finding that on the map. <laughs> um, and in front of people I'd never met, doing the sexual history and the trauma eggs, I mean, while I was waiting my turn, I was terrified. But after I was done, I felt like I'd had the weight of the world taken off my shoulders. 
and you know the Samson meetings. When I get in those, I feel like I can breathe again. That's like Justin said. That's the opposite of abandonment, and I will never forget the first year I went to the retreat. And we, I've been doing virtual meetings for almost a year and now six months and uh, to put the rest of the body to all these faces that I had been seeing, I, I, I don't have vocabulary to tell you how, how great that was. Uh, and I, I'll also hope I never forget the reaction on Nate's face when he saw everybody that had been in these virtual meetings finally meet each other in person. And it was just, man, talk about family. And, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's life-changing. So anyway, thanks, I'm John. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. And thanks, John. Thank, uh, thank you all. We'll be back in a moment on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Oh my, a strange journey getting here today, but I'm here. Nate is stuck at a doctor's appointment with his bride, but that's okay, because I've got Teresa Bean, and this is this has been long awaited, because something happened last time with us <laughs> when you were supposed to be on, so welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here whenever I get to be here. Well, super fun. And I can't wait to hear. I just want to launch right in the story because you have a very unique life and ministry. You are the pastor at North Star Community, which is an interesting community. Oh, man, I love that. When when I planted the two churches, said, call it what you want, but call it community and not church, because church does not mean what it used to mean. True. That's very true. Yes. So yeah. tell me this story, and you don't have to start with the church, but what brought you there? Give the listeners a, a picture of you. Uh, well, gosh, um, I'm not all that interesting, um, but um, we started 22 years ago. And uh, we started as a pilot project. And we started because I, at that time, was working um, as a lay ministry coordinator for our family life minister in a large Southern Baptist church here in Richmond, Virginia. And uh, I coordinated classes. And um, I have a particular interest in healing broken families. Um, and I come from a a family that has a lot of uh, substance use and other challenges. So in particular, I'm interested in, I was interested in um, substance use disorder. Back in the day, we called that alcoholism or addiction, but now we don't. But I was really interested in that. And so what I found at my church was that um, people didn't come with the kind of problems that I knew were sitting there. I, people didn't bring to church the same problems they came over and sat on my patio and talked about. 
And that really bothered me. It made me feel like I wasn't doing all that I should be doing. And so we started this pilot project and actually moved the meeting off-site. I was a little concerned that the steeple was the problem. So we rented an elementary school two blocks away and started having meetings. And that was, like I said, 22 years ago. So, so man, already a bunch of questions. Um, what When you say meetings, were these church meetings or were they AA-style meetings? What, what did a meeting mean? Well, kind of... Um, I wouldn't call it church. And in fact, <laughs> I'll say this, that um, one of my best friends uh, uh, gave us the tagline that we, um, that, that has stuck. We've, we've had taglines before, you know, something like celebrating recovery, renewal and something or other. Didn't stick. I can't even remember what it is. <laughs> but my friend gave us this tagline. She says, we're not much of a church church. There you go. And uh, I think I think what she means in that is that um, we structured ourselves in ways. So I uh, let me back up and say that it was really important to me that we think about who might come, and if they didn't come, that was going to be fine. But if people came, if we hit our quote target audience, they would be people who would not feel like they belonged under a steeple. Mm-hmm. And so we removed all the elements or what I hoped would be most of the elements that would perhaps be barriers to them. So um, we don't take up offerings. Why would you ask, a, why would you pass a plate by, with money in it by a hungry homeless guy? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, and so we eliminated and stripped it down to the bare essentials of what we wanted, which was a place where people could belong no matter how they believed, and that we would deal with issues related to their daily life, their problems. And uh, we founded it, really used a lot of foundational um, respect out of the 12-step meetings. Okay. So still to this day, we read it. We re- read a step at the beginning of every one of our meetings. We do it by month now, you know, like May. So we do the fifth step, um, and um, and we broke people up into um, small groups during the week. But during the week, we just, uh, on Sundays we gathered for a a large group meeting. We had resources there for them and materials and good food because who can listen if their belly's empty. And um, really took a more uh, teaching approach to the message. I mean that we don't we don't say we say we don't talk about preaching. We talk about messaging on Sunday mornings, mm-hmm. and um, just really try to uh, make it a place where anybody should be able to feel like they belong. All right, so take me back to the statement about these were the kind of people people who were hurting and struggling in this way. And 22 years ago, this was not popular to talk about in church. Like just the openness to struggling with addiction, uh, so many struggles that were way more shameful to talk about in the church. And there is still stigma. There is still shame. But it's 
nothing like it was 22 years ago. So Correct. how did you find yourself in the place where you said, oh, this is my thing. I, I love serving here. <laughs> well, it's a place I said I'd never serve. Oh, darn it. That's just the, the wrong thing to say. Did Jonah <laughs> teach us nothing? <laughs> yeah, uh, I uh, actually, I, it was an accident. So um, uh, there was a couple in our church that was kind of uh, new in their recovery, and they got pumped about doing this, and a bunch of people were pumped about doing it. And uh, uh, my husband and I said, well, you know, we understand the organization of the church. We understand how hard this is going to be to get approved by all the committees. And I think I said to my husband at one point, if we don't participate in this, at least at the beginning, I think this is relapse material for the for this guy. I mm. mean, you know, I just cringed at the thought of somebody with this much enthusiasm, fairly new in recovery, fairly early on in the recovery journey, taking on a, an assignment like this without a sturdy team around them, just because of the way it works when you try to do stuff like this at church. And then a few weeks before we were going to start, he said, I don't think I'm up to this. I want to be on the team, but I don't think I'm up to this. And um, I guess uh, I was the only option. Um, yeah, I um, I had, I was kind of prepared to be able to do it. And so I stepped in. No one thought it was going to work. So no one at church was upset that a woman was going to do it. <laughs> it's not going to work anyways. Let the chick have it. That's you, you amazing. Know, well, you know, they were they were sweet to us. They were like, you know, they you know, we've been in that church our whole adult life. And my mm -hmm. husband had been in it since he was in high school. And so I do feel a little bit like, and I don't think this is an unfair assessment, to say that, I mean, we were very responsible in other areas of the church. And I I got the distinct impression that let the little woman get it out of her system and she'll be back doing what she's supposed to be doing over here in short order. Yeah, and, uh, I, I, and it didn't I, work out that way. <laughs> I really, I can't imagine navigating those kinds of things. Um, I've certainly had a lot of conversations with women taking different steps in the church and trying to find that place. Um, and and I kind of love that you're, we'll call it an accident if you want, as long as we, you know, stifle the giggle with that. But that, that the accident came complete with a package where you didn't meet resistance on that level, but stepped into Initially. it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to tell me the rest of that story? I'm in. Well, uh, you know, there there's some sadness to it. Um, so it it worked. Like people showed up, and um, and remember, from my husband's and my perspective, what we were doing was exactly what we believed our church had taught us to do. Mm -hmm. um, Luke ten stuff. Mm -hmm. Go where the fields are ripe for the harvest. Go where the marginalized hang out. Don't take anything with you. You're like lambs to the slaughter, you know, and um, uh, see what God does with what you have to offer. 
And a few weeks in, there was some resistance because it was working. And there was some real hard discussions had in some of the community about the fact that there was a female standing up there delivering a message on a Sunday morning. And um, one of the ladies in the church even went so far to say, as to say, um, if my daughter was doing this, I would have to say she was demon-possessed. Oh, how did that feel? That felt like um, a stab to the heart because these were my spiritual mothers. And it was pretty upsetting. Yeah. Oh, see, that's heartbreaking when you say these were your spiritual mothers. And they were they were using the knowledge they had and doing the best they could. Yeah. But I had to do, I had to respond to the calling I felt and uh, the sense of responsibility to do what Luke 10 said. And I felt equipped to do it, um, both personally and in terms of my own um, development, uh, in terms of, of my training and whatnot. So, so I, I did not feel I could turn back. And, and the other thing that I had said to my husband early on was, if we do this, we have to be committed to it, even if we don't like it. Like, I can't leave this community. Like, if we, if this actually works, you will have to carry me out because by my feet, because these people get left by everybody. Mm. I understand who, these are my these are my peeps. We are the bozos on this bus. <laughs> and people don't people don't long haul with them. Yeah. Now, I had an intuitive sense about that, but it's only been in my work now since that where I've done more working with churches across the country that I have come to see that that is like, I don't even know why I said it then. It was just, yeah. who knows? But like it was, I mean, I hate to use this word, but um, it was kind of prophetic. Yeah, it was It was some people truth, long, some yeah, truth that had been off. seared into your heart that you didn't ask for, but you just knew was right. right. Okay, I, I want to come back to that statement about people that uh, don't get long haulers with them. But I don't want to leave too quickly what you said about your spiritual mothers, because I think a lot of people encounter this, and it's hard to navigate through. When when you said it, I thought of a person who had been very influential in my life, and then I had to walk with them through their struggles. And it it was harder on my heart than I thought it would be. And a dear friend said, oh... Well, it's really hard to see him naked. You're just dealing with the Noah problem. I'm like, what? He's like, well, the shame when Noah got drunk and passed out naked was never pointed at how shameful he was. It was his sons that had to be protective of their shame, which is why the two good brothers walked backwards and covered his nakedness. And it made so much sense that, okay, the old fool is passed out drunk on the ground nude, but it's the sun. He's not going to remember it. <laughs> no, he's not going to remember it. Just right. like probably those folks you're talking about, like, could move on and 
they didn't have to remove the knife from their gut. Right. I think that's true. But you're also right in that they were dealing with the best they knew. Right. And you had encountered something that really, if they were able to process it, the way you had would see, wow, she's actually living out what we dearly believe. We just never saw it through this lens. So what's the process for you to get some healing from making that transition from being the taught and being the daughter to know that you are now being the leader on something they need to learn? Yeah, uh, well, ha- uh, having a good therapist is helpful. And, um, and also, I think having a community of people that is bigger than the community you're serving in. So um, I had an opportunity to participate in um, at Leadership Network out of Dallas. This was many years ago. We had just barely started. And they brought our team together to work with other recovery ministries um, and, and Leadership Network did this. They would identify different people across the country and bring them in. And I think we traveled there once or twice a year, and they'd bring advocates in and speakers in, try to help us. Uh, they they said they took young, innovative ministries and tried to give them better resources. And boy, they did us. Hmm. Um, because what they did is they introduced uh, us at that time to 10 recovery ministries. Um and um, that were very different, very creative and different than, you know, there wasn't all that much creativity and all of it that was in this country was was represented in those meetings. And um, so I got bigger mirroring. Um, so I would be in those meetings and these other churches uh, were not worried about gender issues at all. And so I was given like, I was just given like the respect that you would get when you were respectable. And then I would be given loving accountability when they felt like there was something that I needed to be pushed on a little bit. Mm. Um, And that was perfect. And I think that was also sort of like breaking out of, um, just sort of like breaking out of any kind of family system that's not very healthy to be able to say, well, wait a minute. Um, this is what it feels like to be treated with respect and dignity and unconditional positive regard. And those those folks there did that for me. And it just really, that's how I want every, that's what I want everyone to get hmm. in life. A bigger mirror outside of your community, mm-hmm. which, boy, that's exactly what I got from that guy who was outside of my situation, who helped me put words to it and see it and comfort me in the struggle. That's, yeah. That is so great and and simple. I think it doesn't matter if you're in leadership or not. Uh, we can find those mirrors. I, I love because we have virtual communities as well. So many guys can, can reach out to people that are outside of their immediate community. All right. right. Here's the, here's the impossible question. Answer this oh, for me because, because this is just so hard for me. Okay. Uh, oh, over, over my 22 and a half years of serving as a pastor, there were definitely certain groups of people I struggled with loving. Um, 
Some came very naturally, others did not. And I am thinking of one group right now that was hard for me to do the long haul loving. Uh, I'm a pretty aggressive, let's, let's fight for change, let's work on change, let's work on growth. It's how I'm wired. And this was a particular community of people that I really couldn't go in thinking I better see change in them or I'm out. It was, will you just sit with me in this knowing that you can't do a damn thing? That is, you're talking about communities of people that need that kind of love. Not the aggressive change kind of love. Not always tough love in the way that we like to give it in the church, I think. It's fair to say. Mm-hmm. Or so, in recovery, the way we used to talk about it. Yeah, that's true. That's mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. So how did you learn and what does it look like? How do you equip your own heart to be able to be on a patient journey with someone that is not interested in changing at your rate and preference? Mm. Well, uh, I'm very fortunate in that, I, uh, that in the last uh, 10 years, I've had a co-pastor. So for the first 10 years, it felt kind of like being um, a solo practitioner mm. in anything. Because um, we're very small and humble. Um, we also do humiliating things, but we're like, we're small. I mean, there's nothing fancy about us. Remember, not much of a church church. But um, my co-pastor also happens to be my son, who um, was in middle school when we started this ministry and felt pretty early on that these were his people, uh, that he wanted to be called to for the rest of his life. And so he went to college and he went to grad school out at Fuller Seminary, got a really great education in both recovery ministry and an MDiv, and came back home to serve these people that he loved. Okay, and, pause, pause uh, real quick. What's his name? Scott. Scott McBean. Props to Scott. Come on, yeah. Mom. That's yeah. Just, yeah. I really wanted him to go to law school, but, you know, no. Like, no. <laughs> He's not the easier path. <laughs> um, but um, the thing of it is, is that his personality is very, very patient and um, I am less so. Um, and I think having him come home and having a little bit of a relief from the pressure of being a solo practitioner um, was what has helped me not lose hope and grow in my capacity for the long haul. Um that two or more gathered together. And we've continued to get educated and um, continued to, to learn. And so I think the thing that we've currently learned most recently is good change theory and um, also uh, how people change. And that has made the world of difference. And Scott brought that to, to me through his educational efforts, unconditional positive regard, Mm -hmm. um, respect, and dignity for all. 
And if you don't have those things in place, nobody ever changes. They might comply, but they're not going to change. So that has made it easy for me to be a long hauler because those are the things you've got to bring to the table in order for somebody to change. And I'm a change agent. Mm -hmm. So if this is what it takes for people to change, then I'm all in. And I'm and I knew that other things didn't work. Giving dignity, uh, especially with certain behaviors, I think is always available, but it gets tricky. And sometimes that tough love comes in to that mix that I'm giving you dignity by treating you as I would treat. I'm not going to treat you like you're impaired. I'm going to treat you like a man. I'm going to treat you like a woman. And this is a problem. So what have you learned about that complexity of giving dignity? Isn't just patting people on the back and saying, you're terrific, that it's way deeper than that. Yeah, well, I've learned some people can't handle it. Um, You can give somebody dignity, but it doesn't mean that they are willing or able, and I'm not sure which it is, Mm -hmm. I think probably not able to receive it. Um, Can we pause on that for a minute? I want you to rush over that. You can give people dignity, but it's not a real transaction unless they receive that dignity and let it fill their soul. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, I'm tracking with you. and And dignity believes and respect believes an unconditional positive regard believes that being fully human is a beautiful thing mm. and that the essence of a person agrees with all the things that God says about them that's true. I was going to say, now now the gospel is the only answer for that person. Got to find your identity in Christ and know that it is enough because he is enough, and then you can start receiving dignity. And that's not just for the down and out. That's for the uh, six-figure fella or lady. Well, I kind of think everybody's down and out until (laughs) they can get to the place where they can give and receive respect, dignity, and unconditional positive regard. Beautiful. That is amazing. For some people, it's easier to see than others. You know, um, if you you are um, hungry, it might be easier for you to see than if the world keeps telling you how awesome you are because you're tremendously successful. That's mm. a little confusing, right, message. Right. Yeah, um, because that's, yeah. that's not positive regard that has anything to do with the essence of the soul that God loves through the person of Jesus. That's just, um, what's the word? Bullshit that keeps you from the gospel. It is the thing, I think, that that's really more sad because then you think that people only love you for what you, what you can what you can do for them. Hmm. And so that's even added pressure. Yeah, and then that trickles into our relationship God with God where we think he'll only love us for the things that we can do for him. Right. Exactly. All right, yeah. so what do you say to the people who you know, you're talking about a community of people that most folks would cross a street to avoid. <laughs> So what do you wish, if you could stick something in in their heads or in their eyeballs to see or think something different, you just had this magic power today, 
what would you love for them to see in their mind's eye? Uh, I think the uh, I think if they could see themselves accurately, that would be the thing. That would be the start, because I think with self awareness comes uh, an awareness of our vulnerabilities and our and our utter humility in terms of um, without conscious contact with a power greater than ourselves, we're in trouble. Um, so that's what I would start with with them. And then with that self-awareness, that just opens us up to empathy and compassion because we realize that, you know, um, we are really all bozos on the bus. Mm. And, um, and then there's a lot of egalitarianism about that. Folks, Pastor Teresa Bean is, is giving you gold here i mean i i think you're just echoing jesus words with the unmerciful servant he couldn't see how much he had been forgiven and so he could not have mercy for somebody he believed was beneath him if he yeah. could have only seen himself that grace wouldn't have been hard to access guess that's where all that self-awareness is not just psychobabble all the time Sometimes well, it's just, yeah. Who, who was yeah. who was the first guy that says you you know he didn't say it just like this. Other guys came after him and got bet got bet more quote power on Google. But wasn't it Pythagoras who said originally something like knowing knowing yourself helps you know God and knowing God helps you know yourself. You've got to do it's both and not either or. Mm. And um, and then we've gone down through the ages with different people picking up and. And uh, paraphrasing him, but I think he's the originator of that thought. But I think it's true, you know, and I think that's what the scripture shows us. See, if even a math guy can figure that out, and math guys can't be trusted, we all know that. <laughs> <laughs> then it must be true. That is awesome. How do people get to know more about what you're doing at North Star or, or connect with you if they have thoughts or questions or? What's what's the contact point and information? Yeah, point? well, they can go um, they can go to our website, which is northstarcommunity.com. Um, and um, we're on Facebook and uh, also northstarcommunity.com here in Richmond, Virginia. And uh, yeah, they can reach us through either one of those spots. And if they're visiting near the area, can they stop into a meeting and see this this happen in real time? Uh, they can, and especially it would have been easy pre-pandemic. Um, uh, but we're, with the we're still in that. <laughs> yeah, with the uh, restrictions we have, you can go on um, our website and find out which one of ours are Zoom links, and then all our in-person meetings are also hybrid. So you don't have to be in Richmond to visit us. You can visit us simply by connecting to one of our meetings and going using our Zoom links on, on our webpage. Well, come on. That would be a hoot. <laughs> yeah. Come visit us. Join us. Uh, Teresa, I love, love your heart. So good. And I'm Thank glad you I, so much. I finally got a new web camera so I can actually see and participate. The last uh, six months of Zoom meeting or Zencaster interviews. I've been out in the dark. 
You've so, been all aud- audible, huh? Yes, it's true. And so this is way better. I'm loving well, it. I, I, um, I've enjoyed our conversation so much. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me on. Well, it, it was a pleasure. And we will be right back here on the Pirate Mom Podcast. about it for this week's show. I say before we go, a couple of quick announcements. Mark your calendars for the weekend of November 5, 6, and 7. That's going to be the big national fall retreat in Eva, Tennessee. Uh, More details to follow. We're working on securing workshop leaders and uh, a speaker, and that's going to be a great time. Between now and then, there are a couple of regional retreats. Uh, one in Blue Ridge, Georgia, from July 9th through July 11th, and another in uh, Mojito Creek in Colorado from July 29th to August 1st. Details of those included in the latest edition of the No Bull Briefing. If you are not yet a subscriber to the No Bull Briefing, then then make sure and sign up at samsonsociety.org so you can stay in the loop. Well, uh, before we go, a reminder that I do love, we love to hear from listeners, love your suggestions, your comments, uh, your encouragement, your pushback, whatever. We are all in this together. Uh, And you can reach us at any time at piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. So uh, I guess that's it for for Sean Parks, uh, our producer for Aaron Porter, my co-host. I'm Nate Larkin. I'll see you next week on the Pirate Monk Podcast. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com. <laughs>